This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we spend the hour with historians Mike Davis and John Wiener, bringing just some of the intersecting stories they tell in their long-awaited and absolutely compelling history of Los Angeles in the 60s, Set the Night on Fire. Here we see Los Angeles as a hotbed of political, social, and cultural upheaval and struggles. From the Watts Rebellion to the Chicano blowouts, the anti-war and youth protests, the women's and gay movements, the cultural flowering and media expressions, including KPFK and the Los Angeles Free Press, as well as the ferocious, racist, and violent police response at every turn. It's all here, and we're happy to spend the hour highlighting this story when we return in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're going to be talking about a new book called Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. It's our subject. Mike Davis and John Wiener, the authors, are here to tell the story. This is a monumental brand new book just put out by Verso Press. I won't scare you with how many pages it are, but it's dense. It's an amazing story. I have to say I'm a fast reader. I had to read it slowly just to take it all in. And what a great pleasure it was. I could not put it down. Mike Davis is a writer, historian, longtime political activist, professor emeritus at UCR. He sort of is populated throughout this book. Mike has written beyond this book. He's also written The Monster at Our Door about a different pandemic than the one we're in right now, but very informative for the one that we're in. Prisoners of the American Dream, City of Courts, Late Victorian Holocaust, Buddha's Wagon, Planet of Slums, and so many more. And John Wiener is a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, host and producer of Start Making Sense, which is their weekly podcast. He's also a longtime KPFK programmer. He's also an emeritus professor of U.S. history at UC Irvine. He's a journalist as well, and that appears throughout the book. And his other books include Give Me Some Truth, the John Lennon FBI Files, and How We Forgot the Cold War, A Historical Journey Across America, of course, and more. And this book is an account and a history of youth radicalism and revolt and the unprecedented police violence employed against any signs of protest, resistance, revolt to the status quo. And that status quo was racist to its core, deeply anti-communist and anti-left. It was informed by a Red Scare mentality. The protesters and organizers were young, often junior high and high schoolers, also university students later, as we see, and young people just generally. But the constant throughout the book is the police who use deadly violence against them, beating, sometimes killing, mostly with impunity and mostly targeting blacks and browns. And in the final chapters, we see women charged and on trial for trying to control their own health and understand their own bodies. And throughout, we get an ever-increasing look at the mass protests and the sense as I think Mike says in one of the chapters of that special excitement that occurs when a group of people 
can see and visibly measure their potential power for the first time. And finally, before I bring them on to talk about it, this book is incredibly fitting for our own time because we've just emerged from a spectacular period, literally, you know, from the crash and the Arab Spring to Occupy, but then here in the U.S., the spectacular teachers' strikes and then the worldwide revolts of 2019 against neoliberal austerity and inequality. And then, of course, it's pushed in the background by this pandemic. But it seems to me, Mike and John, that this book comes at an incredibly fitting moment. And maybe I could just ask each of you in turn to spell out what you think are the main arguments and themes of the book. And let's start with you, Mike. Well, one thing we wanted to explore in the book, which is something that's uh, been dealt with in very masterful ways in the history of the Southern civil rights movement really hasn't been a major theme in the histories of the new left of the 60s in the north is what social forces involved in the protest movements who's mobilized and in los angeles although both of us were active in la in the 60s i think we were surprised to discover that if you look at this as a whole High school students and even junior high school students, plus kids in the community colleges, play the extraordinary central role in the struggle. And it's above all a struggle led by youth of color, black, Chicano, but also Asian Americans and and others. Secondly, we wanted to try and understand this from a strategic standpoint. Years ago, I was in Frankfurt, Germany, and I got invited to uh, IG Metall, the biggest metal workers union in the world, by their education department. And they showed me this incredible summer school they had where workers, shop stewards, would get a couple weeks off. They'd go to this camp. They'd bring their wives and kids along who had their own activities. And they would basically war game modern German history. They would refight the revolution of 1918-1919. They would revisit 1932-1933 because the Union argued that uh, these struggles were so important tactically and strategically that this was one of the best methods to teach the Union activists. And so we went back to the 60s in the hope of looking at this kind of wargaming it once again to understand what kinds of uh, strategic ideas informed the struggles of the period, to review some of the debates that occurred, particularly, say, on an issue like, is it at all important for radicals to support, critically support liberal reforms, for instance, to participate in electoral politics? A lot of us didn't. And John? Well, The spine of the book, the starting point of the book, is what we call the issue of issues, and that's segregation, racism, and, as you said, the police violence that greeted anybody who objected or resisted or proposed alternatives. So the the core of the book is a narrative history of a Black and Chicano struggle, which went through many distinct phases in our understanding of it. And then swirling around those movements were the more uh, familiar parts of the L.A. 60s, 
youth culture, radicalism at Venice Beach, hippies on Sunset Strip fighting the sheriffs, the women's movement, the gay movement, uh, the Asian American movement. And as you said, what unites all of them, what forced them all into the same boat was the LAPD, which didn't like any of them. I want to take it back then and let's start to situate this because you begin the book literally going back into the sort of recent pre-war and post-war history of Los Angeles and situated, of course, at the beginnings of the civil rights movement, but also, you know, paint this picture of the incredibly racist politics that for those who may only know the Los Angeles of today, you might be surprised by this. And And I think the other thing that comes through here is how much LA is seen as in this period, a city of the South. I think you have a great way of putting it, and I'll let you do it, uh, Mike, later on. But it's also, you know, something where people came from the Dust Bowl and that there's a lot of uh, roots to the kind of racism uh, that you see. But then, as I mentioned in the intro, to informed by the Red Scare politics. So I'd like to kind of go back and just talk in the very beginning about the way that you see the civil rights movement and, you know, that racism setting the stage for the 60s. And perhaps we start with Mike on that one. Well, California was relatively unique amongst non-Confederate states in having legal residential segregation. That is, the state Supreme Court on several occasions upheld restrictive covenants, including ones that were adopted after subdivisions were already developed by a vote of majority of neighbors. These are actually parts of the deed to your house. And restricted covenants prevented the sales of the home to people of color and often to Asians, particularly Japanese Americans, and in some cases to Jews. Now, at the end of the Second World War, there's an extraordinary uh, labor and civil rights upsurge in Los Angeles on basis of the broadest unity the city had ever seen. And in some ways, the unity that even exceeds that, that came into existence during the 1960s. And one of the big battles and great successes was that Lauren Miller, who's a key figure in the civil rights history of L.A. down and through the 1960s, a young lawyer who actually prepared to ground for Brown versus Topeka Board of Education decision, went to the U.S. Supreme Court and they overthrew legal residential segregation in California, but provided no means to change that. So when uh, the U.S. Civil Rights Commission, the new U.S. Civil Rights Commission, came to Los Angeles at the beginning of the 60s, they discovered a city that was more extremely segregated probably than any other American city except for possibly uh, Chicago. This was ultra-segregation. And in a series of hearings, it revealed the kind of violence and even terrorism that enforces boundaries. And we start with one case involving a white homeowner who sold his house to an African-American. He happened to believe that he shouldn't discriminate. He welcomed him as a neighbor. And both the homeowner and the guy that uh, sold the house was subjected to months of harassment, terrorism, physical threats. The valley, apart from the historic black community, 
uh, Pacoima, the beginning of the 60s, was totally segregated. The school system, of course, was also segregated. But the thing is, in 1960, it was becoming more segregated than it had been in 1945, because you had a number of areas in the blue-collar neighborhoods in South Central, but also on the east side. You had integrated high schools. The east side was spectacular in that way. I would Lincoln High School annual from 1938. It's just amazing to see kids from 12, 13 different, you know, ethnic groups and races. But segregation was accelerating at the beginning of the 1960s. And finally, and this becomes a crucial element in the events that lead up to the Watts Rebellion, with the beginning of the Kennedy boom in the economy, after a kind of bad patch of restructuring in the aerospace industry, Los Angeles, for white people, had more or less full employment for a whole decade. But at the same time, there was increasing unemployment in South Los Angeles. So we have here the fact that not only is this a historically segregated city, but the third biggest city at the end of the decade, the second biggest in the United States, is becoming more segregated year after year in all the crucial important areas of housing, schools, and jobs. And this is a critical thing that you're talking about when you talk about sort of the roots of the uh, Watts Rebellion. I think you talk about the police as the sort of major unemployer, in a sense, or, or you know, the violence and the constant arrests mean that all of those kids who were picked up and charged have a very difficult time getting employment apart from the already unequal, let's say, spread of the boom in this period in their community. So again, we go back to, you know, the role of policing, enforcing this segregation and keeping these communities down. What, uh, John, would you like to add anything into this sort of race trajectory and the way that it fuels the generalized revolts that we see, you know, in your book Chronicles? Well, there's a striking period that is not very well known in this history, which is from where we start around 1960 up at least through 1963. There's quite a significant nonviolent direct action movement in L.A. challenging, first of all, housing segregation, sit-ins at track home open houses, picketing of the opening of new subdivisions. L.A. has a vigorous civil rights movement, which includes several uh, trainloads of people going on freedom rides to the South and ending up at Parchman Prison Farm in Mississippi. And this is very much under the, you know, kind of spell of the Southern civil rights movement and the sit-in movement there and the school integration movement there. And it involved a lot of people. It involved a lot of action And it met a dramatic and decisive defeat at the hands of the voters when the state of California passed an open housing law, which was repealed a year later by a statewide initiative vote. And that was pretty much the death blow took the heart out of the nonviolent direct action movement seeking integration, especially of housing. At the same time, there's also a longstanding school integration battle going on, sit-ins at the school board, action in the courts led by the ACLU. This period is very little known and gets, I would say, 
the treatment that it deserves in the opening chapters of our book. Well put. And then maybe we should just go into, I, I do want to kind of weave back and forth the sort of counter-cultural, let's say, youth radicalization that was taking place or beginning to take place at the time of the events that you're describing and the sort of cultural, let's say, institutions that came up and media outlets at the same time. But before we do that, maybe we should just go back to the Watts Rebellion, because that is in 1965 and kind of a precursor of other widespread uh, rebellions in inner cities across the country. And it was really so much apart or on the spectrum of all of the revolts taking place, including the escalating war in Vietnam. But I'd like to have you situate that. Maybe you could do it, Mike, in terms of the growing radicalism and who are the people that first came out and why? Well, the starting point, of course, was the defeat of the United Civil Rights Movement in 1963. And then in 1964, uh, a group of uh, younger people from the Congress of Racial Equality and from Friends of SNCC tried to keep nonviolent protests going and were arrested and faced with, you know, really tough sentences. So this attempt by the United Civil Rights Movement to negotiate directly with LA's elites on the broad range of issues involving housing, jobs, and schools was a failure. So it created a vacuum. And at the same time, the Rumford Fair Housing Act, Byron Rumford was a pioneering Black activist from Oakland, progressive Democrat, had been passed uh, almost miraculously in the California legislature. And uh, a repeal of the law was put on the ballot in November 1964, Proposition 14. And two-thirds of the white voters in California voted to repeal it. These were the two stunning defeats of reform that seemed to remove the possibility of peaceful change. And then in the spring of, of 1965, or the early summer, uh, the Watts Rebellion occurred in August. A young black woman was raped by two policemen and then later murdered under mysterious circumstances. This story was like a headline story in LA's two black papers, the, the Eagle and the Sentinel. It got only the very briefest note in the LA Times. But as news of this spread through the community, it was incensed. So it took a little more than a typical LAPD overreaction. Some black motorists stopped as they seemed to be uh, under the influence by highway patrol. And the LAPD show up and they start beating people. And so on. And you have a, a week of rebellion. National Guards sent in. I remember TV. I was in the curfew area. TV was saying, well, the National Guard says there are no machine, machine guns being used. And right then, a Jeep with a 50 caliber machine gun was by. But this was not a tragedy. This led to a community uh, renaissance, which Sean can talk about on a broad culture and political scale. It also led to the end of gang warfare for uh, seven or eight years. 
John, why don't you just pick this up? Because we're really talking about the Watts Renaissance in the aftermath of the Watts Rebellion. But also, I'd like you, we'll go into this and talk about the other aspects of this cultural sort of flowering that had some expression in alternative media outlets as well. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. A little, it's parts of it are known in uh, the world of plastic arts, sculpture especially. There's a, this is kind of a, a major moment in LA art history that has been recently rediscovered. We focus on Nora, Noah Purifoy, who started assembling uh, sculptures out of junk he found in the wake of the Watts riots. This is now, you know, priceless uh, archival material collected by the LA County Museum and so on. Uh, and there was a similar flowering of avant-garde jazz led by Horace Tapscott. And all this was very much integrated with the political movement. I mean, Horace Tapscott's musicians played at fundraisers for left-wing groups. I mean, the same people who were doing the radical sculpture were teaching classes at the uh, Watts Towers Art Center. Probably the most significant art movement of L.A. in that decade was the Watts Renaissance that followed the Watts Uprising and certainly completely unexpected by the art world. And then, John, maybe you could uh, do this because we, you know, the early chapters of the book also talk about two incredible institutions that perhaps our listeners know about. One is the Free Press and Art Kunkin, and the other one is KPFK. And of course, Art Kunkin died last year. He was, uh, I think, almost 92. For those of us who knew him, we thought he'd live forever, and he thought he'd live forever. Uh, But he was a great iconoclast, but he also was a, a socialist and had been a Trotskyist, and he had a specific role to play in all of the struggles that are mentioned in your book and all of the revolts. So maybe you could talk about that aspect of, let's call it, this cultural renaissance coming out of the beginnings of the rebellion. Well, the, the L.A. Free Press became was in some ways the first underground newspaper of the 60s. There had been the Village Voice, but the Village Voice was always in the orbit of Reform Democrats. And uh, the Free Press was from a new era, ended up with a quarter of a million readers. It was the biggest by far of all the underground newspapers. And while we think of it as part of the 60s, as you emphasize, Art Kunkin, the founder, the publisher, the editor, was very much part of the old left. Uh, He had edited the SWP newspaper. Uh, He had worked on a community newspaper in East LA. And he thought that there should be a paper that was connected to the uh, burgeoning um, uh, anti-war movement and black radical movement. He started at a great moment in 1964, it was maybe, uh, I don't know, a year before the Watts Rebellion. And the Watts Rebellion was where the L.A. Free Press really shone. Well, the L.A. Times was running just wildly racist headlines about, you know, animals in the streets. Uh, the headline in the Free Press was, The Negroes Have Spoken. Art Kunkin, because of his work with CORE, was in touch with writers uh, in South L.A. And while the L.A. Times had no no black writers. I think they had one black photographer, and that was it for the whole LA Times. The Free Press published black writers on the Watts Uprising, got them a huge audience and tremendous respect. So, became a published 
uh, I don't know, 48 pages once a week distributed and sold on Sunset Strip by hippies and at corner coin boxes, always against censorship, uh, very much open to all the new movements, open to the gay movement, open to the women's movement, but never run as a new left collective. It was always, it had a publisher, it had an editor, he ran the paper, he took, he was in charge of the money. And it worked. It worked for a long time. And it's also uh, a counterpoint. If I could just say, like in in all of your accounts, you know, you get the official line on whatever struggle it was and the police response. And then you go to how it was covered in the free press. And I don't know, not having lived in this period, how widely read that was, but what a great resource. And we're very lucky that it's all been digitized and available online. And thanks to whoever whatever library was responsible for that. What about the other side of it? And then we'll get back to some of the really important, I guess, you know, struggles and how they develop politically. And I want to get there. But, you know, you start uh, in the chapter on KPFK on the beginnings of KPFK and the early kind of programming that I have to say, when I read it, I wept. Uh, (laughs) Maybe I'd like to have you give some of the flavor to our listeners. Well, KPFK was one of the first FM stations in the United States, the biggest signal west of the Mississippi. The idea of FM at that point was that it was at high fidelity, unlike AM. So it's going to be high sound quality. So all the early FM stations were basically classical music stations. And KPFK, when it first uh, began broadcasting, this was in the late 50s, uh, was a classical music station with a couple of hours of uh, kind of high-minded public affairs programming. They had a news department that was kind of professional, middle of the road, one both sides of the story kind of news. And then they had high-minded lectures by Aldous Huxley and David Reisman and famous philosophers dealing with the big issues of human existence. Their political conception was they would be open to all points of view. So they invited people on the far right, like William Buckley, to host commentaries. And then they also had a left-wing show. They invited Dorothy Healy, the very well-known head of the Communist Party of Southern California, and she decided to call her program Communist Commentary. Now, this was a very wild thing to do in the early 50s when HUAC was still uh, holding hearings and uh, McCarthy had recently uh, been driven out of the Senate. And because of Dorothy Healy's communist commentary, all the right-wingers and all the centrists said they wouldn't be on the same station with the communists. So they all quit. And suddenly KPFK was the voice of the left in Los Angeles, more because it stuck to its free speech principles that, well, everybody is welcome. And if Dorothy is the only one who wants to do a commentary, then she'll do the commentary. It got KPFK in trouble. Uh, There was an attempt to take away KPFK's license because more than, of its, once. <laughs> more than once, there were uh, there was a HUAC investigation of Dorothy Healy and the Pacifica Foundation for you know being under the control of uh, the, our overlords in Moscow. That went nowhere. But maybe Mike should explain a little more about why Dorothy Healy was an important person when she came to KPFK. And I want to just, you know, before you do that, Mike, just so to say, too, because, you know, think about KPFK and then think about all of the important characters populating this book from Dorothy, later on, even Sam Kushner, Art Kunkin, Ed Pearl, Mark Cooper. They all. Right. And they exactly. And they all 
and John Wiener too, and they all have a presence on KPFK. You know, KPFK, you know, when I, when I lived in Britain, you may know this too, people couldn't believe that something like that could exist in Los Angeles, but in that citadel of capitalism, that they would allow such a voice to exist. And as John said, it started out by trying to be balanced, but it became the balance against all the other stations, not necessarily having the balance on its air, but you know, you could always turn elsewhere to get that other balance. But Mike, let's talk a little bit about I want to pick up the story after the Watts protest and, you know, the attempts that didn't necessarily work at any kind of reform, but the beginnings of Black radicalism and where it went, you know, after that and how much it was informed by the kind of police violence that we've already seen. Well, maybe first we should look at the formation of Black revolutionaries in Los Angeles. You go back to 1960 and 1961. And there's this group of kids at LA City College, some of them from communist families, some uh, with no left backgrounds. And they started off protesting the the murder of uh, the execution of Carl Chessman, crusading for peace, but they also became a source of freedom writers and later Congress of Racial Equality demonstrators. And one of the key people here was Ron Ebert, later Ron Karenga, uh, who became a leader of the largest black radical group in Los Angeles after the Watts Rebellion, us, meaning our own thing. And Irish, that's Sinn Féin, by the way. I wondered what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> and then you had the United Civil Rights Movement and the defeat of reformism. So you had this group of people floating around. But the Watts Rebellion led to this terrific reinforcement of the number of people committed to radical change. Some of them came off the campuses. A lot of them came off the uh, the streets. And uh, one of the most striking figures was uh, Bunchy Carter, apprentice Bunchy Carter, very decorated veteran of uh, the first part of the Vietnam War, been involved in a big street gang. Uh, car club called the Swassons, and he commanded uh, charismatic loyalty, but he was also a peacemaker. And one of the fruits of the Watts Rebellion was the creation of something called the Black Congress. And it originally included a number of groups, including uh, another LA first, the first uh, African-American draft resistance group headed by a guy named Levi Kingston who I've always regarded as my my older brother. He basically taught me L.A. when I first arrived, uh, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed in 1965. And he had this great group called the Freedom Draft Movement. There was us. There was a local version of the Black Panther Party, because a lot of groups uh, influenced by the original Black Panther Party in Lyons County, Alabama, had sprung up. And then later the uh, uh, the Oakland Black Panther Party came. Angela Davis cut her political teeth working in the Black Congress. So you had this moment that lasted for two and a half or three years of, of Black unity, culturally, but also politically. And it's at this point that unity is shattered 
right at the moment, I mean, there are youth conferences, the California Black Power Youth Conference brings everybody together. The organizers of the protest at the Olympics, the Panthers, us, the whole planet. One of the great tragedies of the history of this period is how black unity was then destroyed. And this war that was essentially concocted and promoted by an alliance of the FBI and their COINTEL program, the LAPD, and then later Chief Parker dies uh, of a heart attack a year after Watts caused great parties all over LA that night. Your line, by the way, I think that's one of the best lines ever written because it's completely out of the blue. I think he's at a at a dinner and then he said, and then he keeled over and died. And it's such an understatement. And he's such a gigantic character in all of this. Congrats on that. uh, By the late 60s, an even more sinister figure appears. And that's the district attorney of Los Angeles, Evel Younger. And John will talk later about his role in the largest student college campus protests of Frida Valley. State, but younger, who following the leadership of uh, Ronald Reagan, who had promised when he was elected governor to uh, smash student revolts everywhere, and younger was angling for uh, a statewide office and later became attorney general. He just started overcharging people on an absolutely incredible scale. And perhaps later we'll talk about the East Side blowouts and the role of one of the most noble people of the whole period, Sal Castro in Lincoln High School, who's an advisor to the blowout group. He gets charged with felonies. Everybody got charged with felonies. I got charged with felonies once in this period. It turned out to be a kind of devastating tactic to use against movements, particularly the nonviolent part of the spectrum. Well, the book is L.A. in the 60s, Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. And I'm speaking with both Mike Davis and John Wiener. And of course, I kind of want to linger for a moment at this high point before we go into some of the disintegration and then also the role, let's say, of in this political awakening of nationalist sentiment, cultural nationalist sentiment and everything else. But I want to go back because I started by asking you, Mike, and then we'll go to John about Dorothy Healy. And it's really quite incredible that, you know, we already mentioned Art Kunkin, and he was part of the Socialist Workers Party and the Trotskyist uh, left in the United States, but there was also a strong Communist Party, and the West Coast Communist Party under the leadership of Dorothy and others was quite different than the others. But it, it really, uh, you know, it sort of begs the question, how did somebody who came out of the, you know, the old left, and let's call it pro-Soviet left, would have so much influence over this burgeoning new left, both black and brown, but also the anti-war movement and everything else? Well, the Communist Party in California, from its uh, formation at the end of the First World War, the dominant group within the party are former members of the Industrial Workers of the World, former left socialists. And the Communist Party in California was always unorthodox and peculiar. And because of that under suspicion. It's great heroic days were, of course, on the long shore in San Francisco, San Francisco, General Strike of 34. It's a very active group in Los Angeles. And near the end of the war, a young party organizer named Dorothy Healy, who had served for a couple of years as a state labor commissioner, and before that, dropped out of high school at 16, stood up in a soapbox in Oakland and, you know, 
harangue the uh, the unemployed. She became a leader of, of the party, the district organizer. And at that point, the Communist Party in Southern California had about 10,000 members. It was a major factor in every social movement. All the fights for racial equality and desegregation and the leadership of uh, the CIO had a major base in the craft unions in Hollywood and this almost apocalyptic Hollywood strike in 1946. And then they were smashed after 1948. The, the high point was the Henry Wallace progressive campaign. And uh, Dorothy used to tell me about the comic opera of having to go underground. She spent the 50s with other party leaders in and out of jail, facing the prospect of long prison terms uh, in the rest of the country. But she never gave up trying to preserve the links with liberals and left liberals or trying to rebuild the public presence of the party. And that's why it was so path-breaking when she obtained this program on KPFK, but also became the first communist to speak in the University of California system, I believe in 1963 at UCLA. She got over a thousand students came out. It was, it was just amazing. So Los Angeles had a continuity of old left and new left that was basically uh, unique. In other areas like the Bay Area, there's, of course, Bettina Abthecker was a leader in the free speech movement. But LA is really the only place where the Communist Party remained not only relevant, but recruited a new generation in the early 60s. I joined the Communist Party at the same time as Angela Davis because the Communist Party in Southern California supported the Czech communist reformers and opposed to the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. And at that time, I believed that a communist renaissance from below was possible. And the party seemed the natural place to be. Plus, it had black leadership, an absolutely incredible group of people, including Franklin and Tendra Alexandra, who were you know, major figures in the struggles in Los Angeles in the, the late 60s. But I have to say, I fought cats and dogs with Dorothy for 20 years over the question of liberals and liberal reform. And so while writing my share of the book, I was constantly arguing in my mind with Dorothy. Uh, she's anything but dead in my, my mind. She's still alive, still giving me a hard time and forcing me to rethink the relationship between liberal reforms and radical revolt. I want to ask just one question, John. I'm going to get to you one second, but it just occurs to me because you're seeing in the rest of the country, you know, Blacks finally entering into industry and into the auto, you know, movements and elsewhere. And much of this book talks about the way that Blacks are kept out of employment because of segregation, police violence, kept out of housing. But there is that aspect as well. And that seems to be more tied to kind of traditional left-wing politics too, including the Communist Party. And I just wondered if you could just say a little bit about how you think, you know, like if you were to try to synthesize the sort of direction or trajectory of Black politics coming out of the Watts rebellion and how, you know, maybe compared to elsewhere, how much was this like a working class rebellion or did it go in national directions? And see if you can pick were, that right up. There were very few students or college graduates involved, both on the South side and the, the East side. Uh, you're talking about young working class 
people here. And people will revisit the, the history of the Panthers. And they'll read all this stuff about espousing the, the lumpen proletariat and so on. But these were blue-collar kids. And after the Watts Rebellion, there was this funny report, official report, that hoed the police line. And it was blown out of the water by a number of important uh, studies, including one from UCLA. And it showed that far from having criminal records and so on, the median person arrested during the Watts Revive was uh, young, had finished high school or was in high school, had no criminal record because she parkered the demon of L.A., in the uh, 60s, early 60s, portrayed the rebellion as led by this kind of residuum, this kind of criminal hardcore. But the actual surveys that were done showed that, in fact, you know, this enjoyed broad support in the community, amongst older people as well. But the kids who came out and fought the police were, you know, by and large, the same kids who would have qualified if they could have had decent high schools to go to college or to hold skilled working class jobs, uh, which they were denied. And in fact, the whole period that uh, we discuss in the book, it's working class youth who are at the center of it, black, brown, and Asian. John, if we think about the 60s, we think about the war in Vietnam. And of course, throughout this book, we see that, you know, it's black and brown kids who are drafted and who lose their lives there. But this was also the sort of backdrop of so many of the protest movements and moratoriums and everything else. And maybe you could talk, John, just about the anti-war movement in Los Angeles. Yeah, well, we think of the story of the 60s as a story of big public universities and elite colleges where students are radicalized. We think of Berkeley, we think of Columbia, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, these big hotbeds of SDS. L.A. is a completely different story. First of all, there's an anti-war movement in L.A. well before the Vietnam War really begins. In 1961, there's this group, you mentioned them briefly, Women's Strike for Peace. This is a ban-the-bomb group that that organizes a march of 2,000 people on L.A. City Hall in 1961, calling for an end to nuclear testing, which was leading to radioactive fallout. They then sort of morph into, they, they, they're the first group that sends leaders of the American peace movement to Hanoi. Uh, they meet with leaders of the women leaders of the National Liberation Front in Jakarta. Women's Strike for Peace, led by a remarkable woman named Mary Clark, a crucial force in the anti-war movement in L.A. with these much deeper roots than we usually think of. As far as the student anti-war movement goes, it's not based at UCLA. It's certainly not based at USC, but it's at the, the state colleges and at the some of the community colleges. The largest felony mass arrests anywhere in Southern California for anti-war protest or, or during this period, during the 60s, let me correct that, during the 60s, was not at UCLA. It was at a new school called Valley State. Today it's called Cal State Northridge. It had just been formed in the far western end of the San Fernando Valley. It started out as a black studies 
protest on election day of 1968. Again, just a coincidence. It really wasn't planned to be on election day. Black students occupied the office of the president demanding changes in the football program, which was run by, uh, had some racist coaches. At the same time, there was a, an important SDS chapter that, that produced some national leaders of SDS and that indeed had close ties to Dorothy and the Communist Party. The, the SDS movement, which was in an anti-war phase, supported the BSU struggle there. Uh, but Evel Younger, previously mentioned, the DA of, of L.A., brought 1,730 felony charges against the two dozen black students who occupied the president's office for a couple of hours on election day, the largest mass felony prosecution anywhere in the United States of student radicals. Uh, This was followed then by a year of turmoil organized by SDS. Unfortunately, the trials took up most of the lives, especially of the black students. A handful of the leaders served months in prison A lot of the other leaders, their sentences included being banned from campus. So it kind of decapitated the black radical movement at Valley State. The result was that the Chicano Studies movement, which had always been sort of tailing behind the black studies movement, moved to the forefront. They had not had their leaders arrested, and they had a very talented faculty member named Rudy Acuna, who who was hired to head up a Chicano studies program. And the result is that Valley State today has the largest uh, Chicano studies program in California, but has produced the most graduates, the most leaders, all a very unintended result of this year of turmoil at a campus nobody ever imagined would be the center of black and student radicalism in Los Angeles, Valley State College. And a very white part of the valley, too. So that's another sort of aspect of it. But this takes me back to you, Mike, because you talked about young Chicano and Black radicalism. And I kind of was throughout the book looking for the links with the radicalism of these sectors in the anti-war movement. I know for myself in the Bay Area at that time, this was very important. And it seemed to be, you know, there were these different directions that were being taken, fighting for Black and Chicano studies departments. And then, you know, even in the culminating student strike at Valley State that John was talking about, uh, those movements chose to highlight their struggle for these more permanent departments over their participation in the anti-war movement. But I was hoping, Mike, you could take it back to how that became the focus of those struggles and perhaps coming out of what you described with the blowouts. Well, for a number of years, from the beginning of the 60s, kids from Eastside High Schools, from the five big Eastside High Schools, went every summer to a uh, liberal Jewish summer camp up by Malibu for a few days of camping and, and discussion. And one of the people involved in leading the discussion groups was a young community worker who became a high school teacher named Sal Castro. And over a period of about three summers, a cadre of kids developed who influenced Sal Castro or influenced by him. It was a very give-and-take situations. And they were fighting over kind of different educational issues some way from black community. Black community was in these huge overcrowded high schools fighting for school integration. 
on the east side that wanted control over those schools and a representation of culture in the curriculum. So by the time the blowouts happen, some of these kids are still in, are, are now in college at UCLA and Cal State LA. Their younger brothers and sisters are juniors and seniors in high school. And this remarkable chemistry turned this into one of the more extraordinary rebellions of the 1960s, blowing out the East Side high schools, confronting the police, Sal Castro, as I mentioned earlier, with the insane felony accounts. But it wasn't just the East Side. Any historiography that says, look, East Side blew out, that's the story. Black high schools also worked out. And the following year, there was a general strike of all the black high schools and some of the junior high schools in L.A. And there was one junior high school, Carver High School, which is a separate story, that suffered some of the worst police brutality in the period. So the blowouts were triumphant, even if their immediate goals were not achieved. Kids really felt they had come out and kicked ass and stood up for the community. And in the process of this rebellion, they created a new cultural identity for themselves as Chicanos. And it's too complicated to... Very complex. To, to attempt to summarize. But basically, they were saying, we're like black kids. Okay, We're the victims of racial oppression in the land of, of our origin. And although cultural nationalism in some contexts played a reactionary role, it's actually played a very, probably a very positive role in the East Side movements. And a culmination of all this was that the East Side activists, both the college and high school kids, started organizing their own movement against the war in Vietnam, carried out a series of protests just by themselves without... Uh, uh, I'm not sure that the L.A.'s Big Peace Action Committee that coordinated the, the large anti-war demonstrations is even involved. They did this bootstraps. And its culmination, 1970, was the National Chicano Moratorium. Now, I had worked full-time as an anti-war organizer for several years for students from Democratic Society. I had been in a lot of protests. I never saw a protest like this. The whole community was on, you know, from little kids to abuelas, 20,000 people marching down Whittier Boulevard. It had been organized to be an entirely peaceful demonstration. Ended up in the park just at the city-county limits. And then it was attacked by the sheriffs and the LAPD. And I happened to be in the liquor store where the original incident that supposedly forced the police to attack occurred. It wasn't that. They just absolutely stormed it. Several people were killed. And most famously, the first uh, Latino journalist in LA to have natural, national statues reporter, Ruben Salazar. And listeners want to find out more about this story. He was almost certain on the eve of the moratorium that it would be attacked. He also believed he was in personal danger. And he was inside a bar covering from Tiriaz with other reporters from KCT, the public television station that he had a program on, when he was murdered by an L.A. County sheriff under circumstances and never been 
resolved. And I want to say the account of that murder is just, you know, it, it, it my then the hair on my skin stands up because it's it, and of course we all know about this if you live in LA you sort of know about this incident now but i think it brings together one of the threads of your book which is just this incredible racism and violence of the LAPD and the sheriffs the sort of military response that they uh, use against any form of protest and it starts out against black and brown kids, but it also goes against, you know, uh, at at the Century City Anti-War March, and it's also on Hollywood Boulevard or Sunset Boulevard. John maybe can talk about that. Venice Beach. It doesn't matter. And then, of course, Valley State and those thousands of felon or or 1,700 felony charges. It's, It's almost as if they act with impunity and without regard for what it means in radicalizing and creating even more protest. And it's it's really quite extraordinary. And then, you know, we get to the even further violence that one almost imagines comes from the police, but it comes from Cuban terrorists against, you know, cultural institutions like Ed Pearl's Ashgrove and Haymarket. So there's all those stories. I want to get into it, and I'm not even sure where to go next. But maybe if John could talk about the Ashgrove, and then Mike can talk about the Haymarket, we'll get this sense of, uh, let me call it the atmosphere of violence that certainly was begun with the, by the police. Well, it's, it's a little known fact that L.A. was the site of more domestic terrorist incidents in the mid-60s than any other city in the United States. And this was, this was all at the hands of a group we called them gusanos, worms, the, the right-wing anti-Castro-Cuban exiles who were not only in Miami, but there was a, they had an outpost in L.A., and they firebombed and attacked all kinds of left-wing uh, centers, the SWP, which was very committed to their Fidel <laughs> at, their, at that time, they, they firebombed and tried to attack the SWP offices many times. They attacked the Ashgrove, which was a folk music club, which happened to be showing Saul Landau's film Fidel. They set out to, to burn it down uh, twice. And they also attacked movement centers, new left movement centers, notably the Haymarket. This was Basically, 50 years ago, right now, I had I had taken on the task of writing about all this for Liberation News Service, the coordinated force serving the all the underground newspapers uh, of the United States. And part of my coverage of the Gusano attacks on all these left wing targets was to interview one of the leaders at the Haymarket, a guy named Mike Davis. This is where I met Mike Davis, interviewing him about these right-wing attempts to burn down movement centers in L.A. Mike, I want you to pick it up because this is just such an amazing story. And I remember the first time you told it to me in in Britain, and I, you know, my eyes went just into saucers. I couldn't believe that this was happening in L.A. And at the same time, I could. But pick up this story of what happened at the Haymarket. Well, the Haymarket was near LACC. It was a small collective of kids who were kind of debating which of the far-left groups at the time they wanted to join or become close to, headed by a, a great guy named Roger McCready, who unfortunately died a year, year and a half later in a trivial outdoor accident. But we had known that the Cuban exiles, Alpha 66, was the veterans organization for the Bay of Pigs, 
we're going to attack because we're showing Cuban films. And so we were actually armed and ready to repel. But I had to leave that night to go pick up uh, uh, my wife, who was in teacher training at uh, USC. And when we drove back up the Hollywood freeway, see flames 60 feet in the air. And thankfully, the comrades on duty that night did not try and resist the veterans of the Cuban police and uh, the Bay of Pigs. They came storming in with guns, but they also had these canisters of oven cleaner. And there was a kid in the center. I think it was the first time he'd come. He didn't even come for the Cuban films. You know, he came because his coffee house and he was curious. They sprayed him directly in the face. His mouth was open. A month later, he died of pneumonia from the results of, of being sprayed. And uh, later, some of these people, and John writes about this, were arrested for attacking the ash group. But then they hightailed it out and became Contras in Nicaragua. And nobody really ever went to jail. And of course, that's the point, right? That these incredible acts of terrorism that came from the right and, you know, that the police probably applauded. We don't know for sure, but they certainly didn't prosecute. And there's obviously a lot of stories that we can't tell here. And But I do think as we're coming to the end of the show, maybe, John, you wanted to add anything that you could on this period of the incredible terrorist violence that you were covering and how you covered it. You covered it for Liberation News and the Free Press and where I don't know where else at the time. But maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And then I want to talk to you both finally about the legacy. The chapter here that we've only touched on briefly is the Century City protest in 1967. This is one of the biggest anti-war protests in California history, LBJ came to Los Angeles to launch his re-election campaign with a gala fundraiser at the brand new Century Plaza Hotel. Century City was still under construction at that time. And Southern California turned out in force to protest outside the hotel. Groups came from all over the place very carefully coordinated and organized. First, there was a rally in the corner of Motor and Pico in the park there. Muhammad Ali spoke at this rally. Doc just had been indicted uh, as a draft resistor. Uh, Dr. Spock spoke at this rally. Then they marched up to the hotel to declare their opposition to the war in Vietnam. They were met by a thousand LAPD members in riot gear who just mercilessly attacked this group. They were middle-class white people. A lot of people brought their little kids in strollers. If you look at the pictures, people are dressed up, you know, men wearing jackets, some wearing ties, doctors in white robes. The police spent over an hour chasing and beating the anti-war protesters at Century City in 1967. This ended up, I believe, helping to convince LBJ he could not possibly run for re-election. It also had a major effect in transforming L.A. politics because this was a turning point for the liberal West side of L.A., who suddenly had experienced firsthand the brutality of the LAPD clubs coming crashing down on their own heads and on their kids. A black city councilman named Tom Bradley was running as a, a progressive candidate for mayor a couple of years later, challenging the evil racist Sam Yorty, who was completely in the pocket of the police. The Bradley for Mayor campaign of 1969 was a real movement campaign. 
a storefront office, dozens of storefront headquarters all over the city. He did extremely well in the primary, narrowly lost the runoff, and then four years later was elected mayor of Los Angeles, the first black mayor in the history of Los Angeles. But this is one of those stories Mike was referring to, where the early radical phase, the protest, the street-level organization, the grassroots mobilization is turned back. And instead, Bradley is elected by a coalition of downtown businessmen and Democratic Party uh, regulars who go on to Congress and so on. So it's one of those sort of a victory in that L.A. does end up, does get rid of Sam Yorty, does get a black mayor, but it's not the one who we were uh, campaigning for after Century City. So I think that's also a crucial part of L.A. history that we tell in this book. Well, I think we've just about run out of time, but I want to let you finish. And I think with just a kind of there's a thread throughout this of revolt. And you tell the stories of these intersecting stories that paint a picture of the radicalism of the period of the ferocious response by the reactionary forces in the police and also the federal response through the FBI that we know so well. But we then go through a period where I guess the question is, what is the legacy of these movements and what does it mean for today? And why did you try to, as you say, uh, keep the circle unbroken by telling these stories? Well, there are two legacies. The movements of the 60s and early 70s for all the heroism of thousands of people and the immense energy poured into them were all defeated in their basic goals. So one legacy is the fact that people Young people today in Los Angeles are fighting for many of the same things that their grandparents were during the 1960s. Look at the school strike uh, of teachers, community, and students last year. The issues have raised about overcrowding and so on. These are exactly the same issues that the United Civil Rights Movement was protesting in 63, the blowouts five years later. So despite the rise of liberal Democrats to power in in Los Angeles. So much of the apparatus of racial and ethnic inequality and oppression remains. But there's a second legacy, which is what then happens to the people who were the activists in the 60s. If their movements did not win great victories, they nonetheless planted the seeds for further generations of activism. And if you talk to a lot of the kids involved in last year's school strike. Uh, So many of my students, when I was teaching at UC Riverside, came out of uh, labor families in in LA. These memories were kept alive. They were inspiring. So what we were hoping to communicate at the end of the day, wasn't just a colorful story uh, that happened a very, very long time ago but to try and promote some of the, you know, the lessons and the connections that might be valuable in today's struggle, given that we're fighting for so many of the same things. And of course, now with the economy and depression and looking like it'll stay in depression for years, all the struggles of the past, the 1930s and the 1960s, have great meaning for contemporary generations. 
I like that very much. And it reminds me, you know, of something that Victor Serge said, too, as they were being slaughtered, you know, not by the forces of the right, but by the counter-revolution in the Soviet Union. And he said that someday new harvests of revolution will sprout up from our remains underneath. That's a great note to end on. I want to thank both of you for joining me today, Mike Davis and John Wiener, and congratulate you on this monumental book. You seemingly wrote it so quickly, it seems like it's a life's work. Set the Night on Fire, LA in the 60s. It's from Verso Press, and I highly encourage that you not only get it, but that you take a lot of time to read it and absorb it, because there's just so much inside. Mike and John are both Professor Emeriti. They've written lots of books, and you can look them up. John Wiener and Mike Davis, thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Our pleasure. Thank you, Susie. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine, and special thanks to Robert Brenner, and thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.